The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is John Etherton. John is the president of Etherton and Associates and uh John is one of my favorite guests on the show. Um, talk about congressional process, budget, policy issues, all things DOD acquisition. Um, John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be back. Well, I'm, as always, looking forward to this conversation. And, you know, let's just start. Can Could you give us sort of a big picture, like immediate where we are in the current Congress and the DOD, the lay of the land with regard to some of the key policy, congressional initiatives, budget, that sort of thing? Sure, Roger. Um, well, as everyone knows, the sort of what really drives congressional process is the budget and a lot of the bills associated with that. Um, so right now we're in a situation where the both appropriations committees and the authorization committees, uh, those that deal with defense especially, are in the process of putting together their bills and getting ready to uh, do the markups in committee. Um, th- this week, the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee uh, is marking up on Wednesday, and we'll likely see their report and tables and things like that within a day or two. Uh, next week, the Senate Armed Services Committee has planned their markup, which unfortunately for the public will not be done in an open fashion, but uh, they'll do that next week and probably have a press release out, uh, I would expect, on Friday with some of the details of things that they're, they want to pursue and then uh, right after the Memorial Day recess, the House Armed Services Committee will do their markup of the defense authorization bill for fiscal year 20. And there will be some um, acquisition policy provisions in that bill in Title VIII, as there always are. This week also, uh, Senator, or Congressman Thornberry has said that he plans to put out for public comment two acquisition policy-related bills – one dealing with innovation and the other dealing with the implementation of all of the of the legislation we've seen over the last four years. Uh, so that should give some prelude at least to what the conversation will be uh, going into the markup in the House Armed Services Committee, although uh, the new majority will obviously will have some areas that they want to pursue that will be separate and apart from that. So I think over the next three or four weeks, we're going to see quite a bit in terms of Congress setting the agenda, and then we'll spend the, the bulk of the summer hopefully trying to work out what an appropriate top-line number will be, which will then allow the appropriations process to move forward and uh, sort of see what the policy issues are that are being discussed that have a legislative implication. So, that's- so, so John, so typically to just let's do some civics 101. Sure. So we have the Appropriations Committee and, you know, and then the, the, the Senate Armed Services is going to do the authorization. It sounds like the appropriations are a bit ahead of right. the authorization. Is that typical, or is, and what are the implications of that? It's not typical. I think the implications of it remain to be seen, but I know that the House uh, Armed Services Committee and the House Defense Appropriations Committee, at least what I've heard, have been collaborating quite closely in terms of the budget numbers, and that uh, you know they have a common top line which they will use for markup. Um, but normally, the authorization committees are first. 
And that's one of the ways that they preserve their relevance in the process because essentially, and having worked on the Armed Services Committee for a number of years on the Senate side, what the Authorization Committee and their bill will do are really two things. Number one, on the funding side, they'll sort of set some boundaries, uh, at least at the account level, that then the Appropriations Committees can work within. And sometimes the authorizers will take tough decisions that maybe there's some sympathy in the appropriations side, but maybe the politics won't support. And by virtue of the authorization bill going first, that makes that process. Sets the framework sets for the, the framework author, a little bit for easier. the appropriators. Right. right. And the second thing that they do that's also probably as important as the first is that the authorization bill will essentially carry with it the policy issues that are very controversial and normally bog the process down considerably and by having the authorization bill go first, you essentially put all those uh, issues out there, let everybody debate them, uh, see where the chips fall, and all that is sort of cleared away by the time the appropriations bills come up. And so when they're on the floor, that's usually a matter of a day or two and they're off the floor, whereas the authorization bills can take as long as two to three weeks or even longer. So that that serves a really very, very useful function. By sort of flipping the order – uh, yes, the coordination is important and that will ensure some collaboration on the budget tables. But I think it does maybe call into question a little bit, uh, put into question the relevance of the authorization bills uh, for the overall defense uh, enterprise. I think that uh, – well, it remains to be seen how how this will work out. And I think – at least I've heard that the decision by the Senate committee, which is normally the case, the House will go first, the Senate will go second – or maybe within a week or so, uh, in this case now we have the Senate Armed Services Committee going first, uh, was part of the reason for that was to get out ahead of the appropriations process, at least on the Senate side. So we'll see how all that plays out. But the many years ago, the GAO, the, G- the Government Accountability Office, ruled that the uh, passage of an appropriations bill represents a de facto authorization. So as far as the budget process is concerned, there's no technical reason why you need an authorization bill in order to move forward with the budget decisions. And so the committees have always been on a little bit shaky ground. Right. So is there a, is there a sense of why this is, seems a, you know, the, you know, the standing order sort of not, I mean, it's not fully flipped, but it's, you know, I guess jumbled maybe is a good way to describe it. I don't uh, look at this as anything necessarily as part of the dynamic between the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee and the Armed Services Committee in the House. I think it's part of a bigger process where, in general, um, the leadership and the Appropriations Committee leadership wanted to get all the bills done uh, as quickly as possible, and I think this is just part of that bigger okay. process. Mm-hmm. So that, just in a sense, to get, let's get things moving, let's get it on, let's get people to understand where they are and what they can do Correct. kind of thing. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Sort of a good government thing, sounds like. It bit, is, right? uh, but ultimately <laughs> what will be necessary for all that to move forward uh, to enactment will be a, a broader agreement on the budget caps, which we don't have yet. And uh, and that's, I think, a ways off before we get to that point. So w- with regard to the authorization, do you have a sense of what the – from a procurement perspective, any priorities or things that people – there's some buzz around that people are looking at or – I'll just give you what I've heard, and, and again, uh, on the Senate side in particular, we won't see anything until after the deal is done next week. Um, there's a lot of interest in the software uh, acquisition and practices uh, proposal that came out of the Department of Defense and the Defense Innovation Board. And with that proposal, there was a legislative 
draft, which always makes the conversation a lot easier. If you have draft language, then people can see what it would look like and they can they can understand the implications of it from a statutory basis. So that's being, I think, actively reviewed and looked at both on the House side and on the Senate side. Um, I fully expect there to be some action on some of that. Um, and also I, I think part of that driving that is the fact that you have software which seems to be more and more the the, the carrier of a lot of capability uh, for the military, right. uh, that this becomes more and more of an issue. And it's interesting because that um, software study, basically the language uh, is, applies not only to embedded software and weapon systems, but also software involved in defense business systems, which tends to be more from the commercial world um, and, and basically sets up a com- sort of a similar process for uh, acquisition of software capability in both areas. So it should, it should be an interesting conversation. If you go back and look at the uh, last couple of defense authorization bills, software uh, you know, and the issues around that have come up a couple of times, whether it's in the area of intellectual property or whether there needs to be some sort of a, a process that's significantly or markedly different than what you have for the acquisition of other capabilities. So it should be interesting. That's so different from a, from a sort of – far seca based perspective or different from, uh, I, I guess, just iterative perspective in terms of the funk, you know, how you go about buying it? I mean, what, yeah. what's the- I don't think the issue is so much the FAR DFARS uh, yeah. with DOD. I think it's more of an issue of funding, Okay, uh, how you manage it, how you construct it. the yeah. teams, what sort okay. of timeframes that you impose on the acquisitions. Um, but I think a lot of it, if you read the, the language carefully – uh, really is a matter of taking the existing tools and sort of reorganizing them and, and creating um, a way to get a lot of things started, especially on the development side, and get them moving very quickly. So it almost sounds like to me like having a – where I came from, that would be the, uh, the flexibilities you get from a revolving fund right. or that sort of thing. At least for, for an initial um, – and, and I think the idea is to, to get start, started with something. Uh, I don't think anybody thinks that whatever results from – the markups or whatever, if there in fact is language in the bills, that it'll necessarily be the final word. I think this is everybody looks at this as an iterative work in progress, uh, as people understand the implications of the language and go for, going forward. And I would not be surprised to see this conversation carried into next year and maybe even the following year. Okay, and John, we're already up on the first break. Um, when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. I want have to ask you about Section Eight Hundred Nine, the panel report, and whether any of that. May or may not be in you know in the uh, in in play for this Congress or whether and any other key things that are going on that you might see coming down the pike. My guest today is John Etherton. He is the president of Etherton and Associates. I am Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is John Etherton. John is the president of Etherton Associates and uh, the go-to guy when I, when I need someone to talk to or enjoy talking to about what's going on in DOD uh, procurement policy and acquisition issues on the Hill. And John, when we took the break, I mentioned the Section 809 panel and its report. And um, is that gaining any traction on the Hill? What What are you hearing or seeing or you know, or thinking about it for that matter. <laughs> I think that people are looking at it. Um, I think, though, that you have to reckon with a couple of things. There have been leadership changes on both the House and Senate Armed Services Committees, and that's where many of these issues would be be looked at. 
Um, so I, I and and that is reflected a little bit on the staff level too. So I think folks are still sort of getting settled in and and looking and at some very complex issues. The other thing to to keep in mind is the report. The final volume came out in January. Um, so people have had, and it was a big document. It was about thirteen hundred pages. And when you combine that with volumes one and two, you're looking at a very, very large document with a lot of you know backup information in it. I do think there's an interest in doing a comprehensive review of the recommendations. I am not expecting that to have happened this year. Um, however, I do believe that the staffs have been looking through the recommendations. There's some things, for example, I mentioned in the earlier segment on software acquisition and IT – that sort of line up in an interest, interesting ways and kind of map to some of the same issues that are discussed in the software report. So I think some of that that would get looked at uh, in, in this process. But I really expect the um, uh, sort of a bigger review of that next year uh, than this year. Right. The the sort of the portfolio concepts they had in the report is that is that anything that I mean? Because when you think about in the last segment, we talked about structure and like for software acquisition and how organizing and funding is, I mean, you mentioned the software recommendations at 809 panel. Is there anything there? Or I think there is. I think, though, that um, for some people who have not been involved in this process for a long time, uh, seeing this in the light of the current PEO structure in DOD for these major programs is is still something that I think people are going to have to understand. I think, in my opinion, and reading the report, there's some significant differences but I also think when you uh, – and when I talked to this – when we had the – I think they did a public rollout meeting in February over at the chamber, and I specifically asked on the whole portfolio concept if they were simply re- recommending that we take the existing PEO structure yeah. and, and sort of use that, and they everybody said yes, which is a is a good – Totally audience PEO. I'm sorry, a program executive officer. That's it's sort of the higher level organization intermediate between the head of the service – acquisition uh, enterprise and then the individual program so that it, it sort of tracks things that are you know in in a so- somewhat of a portfolio but I don't think that was the original uh, organizing principle so I think there'll be some conversation around that but I don't know that folks are going to feel uh, ready to to sort of take that on as a, as a as a new principle the other thing and I didn't say this in the earlier uh, uh, segment is that at least uh, the Senate folks have said that they are probably less interested in more radical or sort of big picture reform than they are at this stage in looking at individual, more tactical things related to the the procurement, the sort of big A, little A. This is more the little A stuff that in acquisition that people talk about more procurement kinds of related things. And we'll see how that plays out in the markup next So week. they're more interested in those? They're more purpose? interested in more tactical, sort okay. of looking at things more tactically than trying to, you know, uh, do some bigger picture, bolder things. Which I think people feel with the real, with the disestablishment and the reorganization around the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics and the devolution of so much more of the day to day oversight to the services. I think people feel that DOD is going to need some time to digest all that before they try to impose some higher and and this whole portfolio issue might fit in that. The other thing that I think is an issue on the eight hundred nine panel is that the letter that came over from uh, the department. Uh, as sort of the re- response to the Hill on the 809 panel was I, – I wouldn't characterize it as why, it, it, it very enthusiastic. It was fairly lukewarm. It was sort of like we're looking at all these things. A lot of the things that they recommend we're already doing. 
Right. Argue about that, but I, I I think for something like a portfolio shift or something like that, there would at least have to be some at this stage some indication the DOD was open to that, or that at least there were some parts yeah, yeah, into that, it, yeah, into that it, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Um, well, you know that was all about streamlining. Yeah. Right. I mean, arguably, you could right. one could say um, at least the tactical recommendations. Um, those who promote those would say that's about streamlining. So I wanted to maybe shift the conversation a little bit to streamlining, and there's been a lot of um, efforts, initiatives, tools, et cetera, around streamlining. And I just want to get your thoughts on it, and we can go down through some of them. And it's like opportunities, consequences, perhaps, what what or ramifications might be even a better word. So first, let's start with other transactions authority. Um, Your thoughts on that? Well, it seems to be uh, being promoted more and more as the default mechanism. And I I think people need to understand with that that some of that, especially on the R&D side, was really Congress basically saying to DOD, this is kind of the way we think you ought to go, especially in using other transactions and sort of non-FAR, non-DFARS-based acquisition approaches – in the earlier stages of development. And, and it, I think it's all part of a bigger set of concerns around how slow our process can be. The fact that it seems to be an aggregate, a, uh, or a, what do I want to say, sort of a, a artifact or a, a carryover from the Cold War. Uh, there are elements of it that a lot of people feel are sort of a Cold War kind of a model in a world that is becoming much more agile both in terms of the commercial sector and also in terms of what our potential adversaries and peer competitors are doing, and that we need to be able to move things a lot more quickly, especially on some of these critical technologies. We hear a lot on hypersonics. You hear a lot on some of the other things that the research and engineering undersecretary has mentioned, and that this current system just doesn't do a good job uh, with that, nor does it, does it do a very good job of engaging with the non-defense uh, side of things in terms of like your non-traditional non-traditionals and the folks yeah. you know that can bring uh, different things to the table that may be integrated into into defense or systems or whatever, but it, but at least that outreach needs to be improved and we need to move much more quickly. And the and the OTA concept obviously would let us do that uh, um, in a much quicker turnaround. So I think that's there's a lot of attraction there. I'm not sure we've completely sorted out yet what where OTAs work better than. Other kinds of far-based contracts, sure. mm-hmm. and I think that's what I was going to ask you about just yeah, this idea. Yeah. I mean, what you described is, you know, I think people get it when you describe. Well, we need some flexibilities, or you know, using a, other than a far-based contract, perhaps an agreement to you know leverage you know and develop like hypersonic capability or artificial things, those cutting-edge things that are very difficult to. to contract for and execute on in a structured sort of far far basis. But then there's your traditional commercial services and that sort of stuff that, that some would argue there's OTAs that are moving in that direction as well. And where do you draw the line? Is that you see that a an ongoing discussion or I do. I think it is an ongoing discussion and I and I still get the sense from the Congress, at least the staff people I've been talking to, uh, especially on the authorizing side of the world, uh, that there's a real interest in seeing where those boundaries ought to be drawn. You know, where is it appropriate 
to decide, you know, where an OTA is is a better way to go versus maybe a more far based kind of approach. Um, that we haven't really quite done a nice job yet of demarking those two areas. So I think, um, I, you know, I expect to see still some some interest in that, and I think the department is embarked in that same process. I think the real challenge that will emerge is to the extent that a lot of these things are successful, uh, you then have to figure out how do you do a transition or how yeah, you know, sure. create a pathway uh, to it, it, to get – the capability in the hands of the warfighter in some meaningful, large, you know, scalable. Scalability is become, you know, you hear that word quite a bit, and I think people are still kind of struggling with figuring out which of these techniques, which of these techniques, are really are truly going to be scalable uh, in the way that they need to be. Yeah. So, and just we got about a minute left in this segment, but it seems to me I don't know if you if this you think of it this way, but the whole this whole conversation of where how far. Where you draw the line, the OTAs versus the FAR, in a certain sense, I think from a company's perspective, from the private sector perspective, in a certain sense, it's kind of way you divide markets. The right. federal government divides markets all the time in different, whether it's small business, it's all the various NAICS codes that determine whether you're a small business or not for a particular procurement. That's all about dividing markets. Is is you think? Do you think that's part of the yeah, the, uh, it seems to me it's part of the focus on why people are are so, uh, I guess, interested in where I would say concerned or where that line is drawn. I think that uh, yes, I, I think that's a reasonable analogy. I, though I do think that scale is is another consideration. I mean, when you look at markets and scale and process, I guess are big considerations on the DoD side. How fast? What sort of process do you do you need to get something where you want it? And how much of this capability are you eventually going to deploy? And then for how long? Um, and where do, where do the, the OTA instrument, where does it fit in that versus some other things? Given the, I, I sense a real strong imperative that we just need to move everything much more quickly. So I think right. there's there's still a lot of work in progress on this till we get a lot of these things sorted out. And doing it quickly, well, at the, I mean, I think that to thread the needle, you know, doing it more quickly, but also – Having that sense of um, some transparency, right? right, and that creating the you know the the trust factor that you need to have, right, in this context. My guest today is John Etherton. He is the president of Etherton and Associates. And John, when we come back, we'll continue this discussion on streamlining and its consequences. I am Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I am Roger Waldron. My guest today is John Etherton. John is the president of Etherton and Associates. And yeah, today we've been talking a little bit about what's going on on the Hill, a little bit about OTAs. And I wanted to continue the conversation about streamlining and its consequences. And, you know, the Section 804 authorities, you know, tackle them a little bit first and maybe look at the 5,000 rewrite. You can talk about those that mid-tier sort of right. acquisition. So go for it, John. Well, the 804 authorities and, and there are any number of memos that have come out from the Office of the Secretary of Defense. start by just explaining to yes, folks the, the 804. The 804, Section 804 was part of the fiscal year 16 NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act. And it essentially, uh, the idea of middle-tier are not so much sort of described by size as they are by speed that these are sort of efforts that you can do, which would be in a less than five-year uh, time frame to initial operational capability. 
And there's been a real interest in developing this and using the authorities uh, to, again, to streamline the acquisition of capabilities. Um, I think that, uh, if you, again, you read the, the memos, it, it seems to be sort of the preferred method in the early stages now of uh, acquiring capabilities for the warfighter, uh, the idea being that you take a much shorter time frame uh, than normal and that you figure out as you go along uh, how then at some point to integrate these things or how them, to move them uh, in, into, the, uh, into the hands of the warfighter. Uh, but getting to milestone B, I guess, a lot more quickly than is sure. the, in the case under the more traditional process. And I think hand-in-hand hand with that, uh, there's been an interest in rewriting the, the overall uh, DOD 5000 series, which is the instruction that uh, basically specifies how you buy a major, a major defense acquisition program. It's, it's sort of streamlining that. So, again, that you start out with a set of mandatory or rules that are guidance uh, you have a much smaller set of those, um, and DOD's right has indicated that they're in the process now of starting to look at that. I don't know where, when we will likely to see a new a new draft. Um, I would just make a couple of observations about that. Number one, a lot of the things that are in the five thousand are statutory requirements. Yes, mm-hmm. and yes, in the statute there are some things that uh, there's a little bit of waiver leeway, leeway authority, but basically. They are things that are mandated in law. A lot of them are in Chapter 144 uh, of Title 10. I think that there's got – sort of hand in glove with that, there's got to be some discussion with the Hill on what which of those requirements and certifications and reports and other things that are associated with each milestone phase in the, in the uh, 5000 process, which of those things can be modified or lightened up a little bit so that mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't slow the process down. And, and the other feature of that, too, is that when you create those individual elements and those things that are requirements in the process, what you create is essentially an advocacy center for each of those. You know, as, as the people are responsible for implementing them, then they then take a, sort of a role of making sure that they're, they're followed and that their function is properly honored in the overall of process. Of course. That's government. That's government. Right, right, well, yeah. it's not only government. I think it's, it's a it's lot a of It's a human nature. It's, yeah, yeah, right. right. Um, and so the idea that Lisa was explained to me in the 5000 rewrite is, yes, if you read the current 5000, it says, you know, you have the ability to tailor all these different things, and, and a lot of them aren't mandatory. Uh, this, these are sort of all the menu. Uh, but the feeling is that each of those things on the list has an advocate. Uh, so that you essentially have to go and make a case to get rid of you know every single one of them that you want to get rid of in worst case scenario, and by having none to begin with, and essentially by building from a relatively um, small foundation and adding things and having people sort of make a case to add things that you're dealing with a whole different process. And I think there's some truth to that, but I also think that that there's got to be a real clear understanding as you look at the individual rewrites that I've seen in the past. 10 or 20 years on that 5,000, so much of that has been driven by new congressional requirements. So Congress has got to be part of that conversation. And I, I'm i not seeing much evidence that that's the case this year, but I'll be interested. I think next year that'll be front and center. Well, when, when you described it, John, I immediately – well, I didn't immediately, but I started thinking about what, what you mentioned in the first segment about the, you know, the innovation board and the, you know, the ideas around software um, and – you know, just it, I don't know if they're you know in software providing the capability. I don't think they're related, but they logically they seem to me they should be. 
in a certain sense. Does that make sense? It makes sense, and I think it, it is also an indication when whatever the the actual facts may be. And I think there's, in my opinion, if you look at people complain about how cumbersome the FAR DFARS process is, and some of these other things. And I think when you have people that feel sufficiently empowered, they they can manage to work within that framework and really make things happen decisively and relatively quickly. But if assuming that that is, in fact, um, what you end up doing with these other processes essentially are, is saying we're going to – the way we deal with this is, is by having workarounds. You know, we'll create this process for this and this process for that. I think at one point we had a rapid acquisition process. There were some 80 different authorities over the years that had either been granted by Congress or developed internally in the Department of Defense – and I think that you know, people use that as a way of saying, well, that means that the sort of the traditional process is somehow broken. That may be the case, but I also think it's a, it's a case of people and their empowerment and how yeah. the, the degree to which they feel that they can they can step out and the organizations and how people are supported within the organizations. It's a more complicated process. I, it's not something that as you look at these things, that just coming up with a new process necessarily fixes fixes your problem. I think there are other factors, the way the money is distributed and, and the, the conditions that, that attach to that and the way that's overseen. There are a lot of different pieces of that that I think you can't kid yourself and say if all we have to do is this one thing and everything else is going to be wonderful, in my opinion. So is there such a thing as too many tools in the toolbox? Um, I don't, think, I don't think necessarily there's such a thing, but I think if you start – the toolbox starts getting pretty heavy – you need to really start looking at it and saying, you know, perhaps, you know, our readiness to create these tools is really an indication of some underlying issues we have with the process that we really need to take a look at. And maybe it's just not a process issue. We have other things at work here that we need to also deal with that uh, that go beyond process. Requirements. Well, that's what I wanted that, to ask yeah, about those, requirements. Those is things, is right? the real, I mean, is the, there are so many different things. You know, I've heard people say, you know, I know contracting officers are going to make the far thing or do whatever, right? You've heard that old line, right? right? Is it is you know the the it seems the requirements development and the role of requirements development is I mean that I mean is is that broken at the department or is it? I think in the department it's particularly challenging because historically, so many of the things that the department buys, especially if they're comp- more complex systems, and I think it applies to IT as well as weapon systems, they tend to be in place so much longer than the counterpart or the analog would be in the private sector or mm-hmm. in a corporate setting. And when that happens, you, you, it, they, you know, your an, a ability to predict what am I going to need, you know, how is this going to need to evolve to meet the requirements, how am I going to integrate new capabilities, Some those things really become exponentially more difficult. And I think that's that really makes the requirements process really difficult. Right, because they're you know, trying to create something that meets immediate need but also can evolve over a long period of time to continue to meet the need. Right. That is a big challenge. Unless you make a decision that, that you're going to just go with very short-term. Short-term, yeah. Yeah, things that uh, that then you're going to dispose of. And uh, I don't know that we've had a lot of success with that strategy, but maybe that's a future approach. That It's one the Air Force seems to be interested in some – factors. I don't know if that'll work in the future or not. Right. Well, John, we're up on the next break. My guest today is John Etherton, president of Etherton Associates. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about 
um, for this last segment, get back on the commercial engagement, industrial-based policy, you know, all that outreach, what does it mean, and sort of finish up with this sort of big picture, where are we? Um, all right, John, sound good? It sounds great. Okay. I am Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. When the world calls for advanced electronics, we respond with C4ISR breakthroughs. When the world calls for defense from cyber threats, we provide groundbreaking cyber solutions. When the world calls for a revolution in autonomous technology, Northrop Grumman is there. At Northrop Grumman, we're constantly innovating to deliver the most effective and affordable solutions to our customers. Whether it's cyber, logistics, autonomous systems, C4ISR, or strike, that's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com performance. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is John Etherton, president of Etherton & Associates. And, John, um, this is the last segment, and you know, it, it wouldn't be a show if we didn't talk about commercial, commercial engagement, some, something on industrial policy. And we're really talking about like, you know, this, this well-publicized now strategy outreach for, to Silicon Valley by the department. You know, there's that piece of it. There's a the supply chain risk that's become that sort of intention with the engagement with commercial and government you know cyber requirements and then maybe just a little bit on e-commerce so go have at it well i what strikes me about the discussion around commercial is how much we've evolved the conversation since we really spent so much time focusing on it during the time of the federal acquisition streamlining act in the mid-1990s it seems like what the department is trying to do now is so much more complicated, and they've got so many more imperatives that they're struggling to work with. And I say this not only from the standpoint of DOD, but I think to some extent to the other federal agencies as well. And that is, yes, you want to have access to the mar- market-driven um, for, uh, prices, market-driven capabilities. I mean that's the more sort of the traditional way we've looked at it and let the market figure all that out and all then we have to do is take it back onto that, that yeah. take it in and, and get the benefit of it uh, without having to spend all the money and the time and everything else. And I think that's still, for, for some number of realm of activity, that's still a good model. But it seems like now we're also recognizing so much of the very most advanced technology is coming to us uh, via the, the sort of these high-tech industries, whether it's Silicon Valley or, or the analogs around the country, uh, and we, had, we sort of want to tie into that and get that. And also, there seems to be a real concern about if we don't, then uh, somehow or another, these companies will turn overseas uh, to other countries, some of whom may be peer competitors, that we want to keep the technology in our network and in our system in a way that we can continue to use it and to develop. And I think that's a relatively new uh, concern it, uh, when we were sort of everybody was looking at the global marketplace as sort of something that was relatively benign. Well, I don't yeah. think yeah, I don't a good think, thing, a good right. thing, right? Yeah. And I don't think people were so concerned about that. So you have that issue uh, now, and and I thought it was interesting on Friday um, that Undersecretary Lord uh, her press conference, but she mentioned this idea of creating this trusted capital investment uh, sort of capability. Uh, where they could, the, the department's not only trying to get access to technology, but also to try to steer capital uh, in some ways to these companies, so that they don't go to, to our peer competitors or other places to get get that. And that's a new new imperative. And then you have the issues I think that come up in the area of cyber and and you know the basic supply chain security 
uh, again, which add a new layer onto this whole this whole area, given the fact again that we want to stay engaged with the commercial uh, sector. So I think you know it's becoming much much more complex. Uh, set of issues, and then the old issues are still there, which is, as I mentioned earlier, that the government tends to keep things in place a lot a long longer time. than yeah. than the than the commercial uh, world does, and so that you have to factor all that into the process. So I think there, there we have no choice. I think everybody recognizes that the imperative is there. Um, I think the speed issue is one way of of somewhat addressing that, but I think it's very uh, interesting that the department sees a lot of these this whole array of issues now that they have to deal with, some of which are relatively new, and that they have to be you know, putting their thinking caps on and thinking about this. And hopefully the resources are going to be available for them uh, to getting back to the scale issue, to scale these kind of things into meaningful efforts given the large amounts of money flowing around in the commercial sector. Yeah, so you know, the idea of like a commercial – how did you – what was the terminology used? The – Trusted, trusted investor or trusted capital investment. You know, again, something? I had not seen this until yeah. Friday, and I, I, it's probably been talked about, but I want to, but I think that it's just interesting that that's a dimension of an issue that I, I haven't seen the department really wanting to attack systematically. I think they, in the past, these kinds of things of sort of letting the market forces work, and somehow or another that will take care of those things, and that's not something that the department needs to engage in. Uh, I think that there's just a recognition now that the, the pro- problem and the challenges have become a whole lot more complex. Is that something that they'd have, they'd have to engage with the Hill to try to create some sort of what? I Presumably, but yeah. I don't know if there's any. It seems any- there might be some appetite for something like that. I mean, because right. the flip side of it is like the mistrusted folks who you know right. are prohibited from doing business with the federal government and that – you know, kind of like, you know, there's statutory language around some of those. So well, it, it seems to me it's an appealing idea. And for, I, I recall when I was on the Armed Services Committee staff many, 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 many years ago that the idea of the department of getting involved in any sort of um, equity shares or being sort of involved in anything and in, involving financing or anything else was was largely considered kind of anathema, you know, at least in some quarters. And now I think people are having to think a lot more creatively about these things because we do have these, you know, all these issues that are sort of now intertwined, uh, and given the given the way that the global marketplace is so, right, and just yeah. the, the you know the speed by which technology can change right. things overnight, and I think a little idea can have a profound impact, right? Or, right. Yeah. You know. um, yeah. We've got about two minutes left. Any thoughts on the e-commerce side of things when you think about commercial? Well, I think we're going to continue to study it. Uh, I've seen the phase two report is out. There's some few things in there. I don't know to what extent um, that will be the recommendations will be looked at as far as uh, anything on the statutory side. I still think on the e-commerce side, we really have to, you know, I understand the the simple, relatively clear idea being that if we had used the um, commercial marketplaces, either narrowly or broadly, uh, that it would be something that the government would no longer have to support, have the administrative support that we could rely on. Um, I still think we've got a lot of thinking to do about what that looks like uh, in terms of the government unique requirements that are still out there. Uh, some of the way- supply chain we just mentioned. Supply right? chain, um, you know, the restrictions on uh, sources where we can get, you know, get things, uh, the small business, uh, the 
beliefs that we ought to be using the acquisition and taxpayer dollars to support small business. That's a wide, widely supported policy, and all the and the re- restrictions on domestic sources for mm-hmm. certain things. I think all of those things uh, that you've got that issue. Uh, you have sort of, I think, the other challenge to sort of figure out how a fairly widespread use of this, even in, in some uh, categories of commercial items, how that would work with category management, uh, and how you you know make the two of those uh, work together, given the government's large buying power as a as a organization. Right. And I think there are some things like that that I think still need to be sorted out as we go down that road. I think I think it's a good conversation to have. But I, I still yeah. think we're we're going to be spending more time uh, talking about this uh, as we go forward because I think the some some of the initial thinking about it I think then it leads you to these other areas that you have to figure out how to work through. Yeah, and just with a minute left, um, any thoughts on you know I, I want to give you one chance and it's probably could be a whole show like where are we on the continuum of equity? Is I mean it seems to me. It's all a all you hear. It's all about catching up with the private sector, right? And it's just it's the mantra day after day. If you, you sort of hear. Well, I think that the, the challenge there is the private sector is changing all the time. Yes. So where whatever yeah. you're trying to catch up with, whatever model that you may be chasing, may be the yesterday's model. You know, within you know a relatively short time. So I think that challenge is still going to be out there, and and we do have these things that we've imposed on ourselves. Uh, as matters of public policy, uh, in which the procurement process is one of the main instruments for implementing those things. And so I think we're going to continue to have those kind of conversations. I think that I see the continuing uh, emphasis on speed in this whole process. Um, I think given where we are internationally, I think that's a legitimate thing. Yes. Uh, My fear is, honestly, that in the past, uh, when we have focused on one of the three principal considerations in, in acquisition, whether it's speed, performance, or cost, uh, if we focused on one too much to the exclusion of the other two, uh, once the results of the oversight community come back and say, "Well, your things are out of whack," things huh? are out of yeah. whack, we yeah. tend to pull things back into the middle and give up some of the, the advances, and we can't afford to do that. We have, at this point, we have to figure out some way to work through it without that historical pattern repeating itself, and I think that's going to be a real challenge. It's almost like that old theory is like you've got to. You know, you you got to be willing to accept some risks to make some progress right. and learn from it and, yes, to rep, be able to replicate, right, the good results, right? That and it's it's political. I mean it's the basic how you present that yes. and how you talk about it in the political world. It's well, we could do a whole show on oversight and the consequences of it and, right. you know, the benefits and consequences of it. I want to thank my guest today, John Etherton, president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the – Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, 
my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.